Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And you should start making plans to come ride our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, today I am talking with Blister Bike Editor David Golay about the Privateer 161. Then David and I talk about some forks and shocks. We then move on to an aggressive hardtail from Marin called the El Roy. And then we get David's pretty interesting idea or question about wheel size differences and a possible mistake that some of us might be making when we're thinking about 27.5 versus 29 inch wheels. So that is what we have on tap for you today. And so let's get to it. All right, well, David, time to give us some reviewer reports. What do you got first for us today? Yeah, so to start with, two weeks ago on our on this podcast, we talked to Sam Megan of Privateer Bikes. And if you haven't heard that conversation yet, it'd be a good one to check out as a primer for this. But I've also been riding their 161, the their first model and the long travel enduro race bike that they've got out. Um, 161 millimeters of rear travel, like the name would suggest. And it's a pretty interesting bike. Like we talked about in that conversation, it's a notably aggressive long travel enduro bike that a big part of the kind of idea behind it was that they were aiming to make a relatively inexpensive bike with super modern aggressive geometry. And like their brand name suggests, they're kind of aiming it at people who are racing enduro, but funding it themselves and um, just trying to make a really high-performing race bike relatively affordable. So it's an aluminum frame. It's a little bit on the heavier side. As I have it built up, it comes out to right around 35 pounds without pedals. And that's with double-down tires and aluminum wheels and a not super light build by any stretch, but nothing especially heavy either been riding it and am overall really impressed it's just well thought out and has kind of the general features that you would want out of a modern bike it's got nicely thought out cable routing and the suspension's good uh and it's cheap the frame with a rock shock super deluxe ultimate rear shock so a reasonably high-end air shock comes in at just over $1,800, I believe is their latest pricing on it, which is an unusually low price for something like that. And like we talked about on that episode too, they're doing some interesting things with the geometry and sizing specific stuff. The smallest of the four sizes in the range is a 27.5 wheeled bike. The three bigger ones are all 29ers. Um, I'm riding the but they call it a size P3. It's effectively the large out of the bunch. And it's got a 64 degree head tube angle. The chainstay lengths are varied by wheel or by frame size, rather. And so there are 446 millimeters on the large that I'm riding, which is getting to be pretty long, not super crazy so, but on the longer side of things. And then one of the most outstanding 
bits of the geometry is just how super, super steep the C2 angle is. On the large that I'm on, it is 80 degrees effective and 75 and a half actual, which is the steepest bike I've ever been on. And that's sort of showing some interesting pros and cons. Um, it feels very efficient when you're just sort of grinding up a fire road, say, and going pretty slowly and not trying to put out a big effort. But the thing that I have found with it is that being so far forward over the cranks has made it feel like I am just not quite as able to put down a really big effort and put out as much power as I can on bikes with a little bit more moderate C2 angles. And, you know, for an enduro race bike where the whole point is just to get yourself to the top, you're not trying to go fast on the climbs, you just need to get there, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But it, at the same time, it does, I think, limit the bike's versatility as an everyday trail bike for some people, especially in more kind of gentle rolling terrain where you're doing short, punchy climbs and alternating between climbing and descending more often. For the intentions of the bike, it's probably not a bad call, but it's also something that kind of pushes the bike specifically into that direction of being a winch and plummet race bike kind of thing. Yeah. Now, when we were talking to Sam about this, he said, this is definitely a bike that you should spend some time on. And as you do, you will adjust and acclimate a bit to the bike. If I asked you with another, say, 10 rides under your belt, do you expect that you would come back with this same story? Or do you think you would come back and say, well, I've actually just continued to get used to this. And you know what I mean? Like, I now feel less strongly about the way you're positioning the bike right now. So I've got something like a dozen rides on at this point. And over that time, I think I have to some extent gotten used to it. So the take that I just laid out there, I still think is true. I feel a little bit less strongly about it than I did when I first jumped on the bike, you know, but it is a matter of degree rather than that feeling totally going away. So, um, and it's, it's probably worth noting too, that I haven't just been riding this bike in that time. I've been going back and forth between it and a couple of other things. And so it might be more that I would adjust more strongly if I was only spending time on the 161, which hasn't been the case of late. It's a funny thing as a reviewer. On the one hand, like we often get pulled off, and whether it's with skis or with bikes, and you know, we're it's kind of the good news and the bad news. I think we're often cycling through a number of different products, and that can be beneficial in the sense that it helps really stand out, you know, or, or highlight certain particularities of a of a bike when you're running it back against other, say, sort of reference points. But on the other hand, I suppose for somebody who's like, yeah, I won't ever be switching, you know, between a given product. It's like, this is my setup. It's always my setup. There is that thing where we just kind of adapt and adjust to whatever boot or whatever bike, you know, we're in and you get used to it. And so I don't know, 12 rides under your belt so far, like I, I would still sort of trust you on this, that the person who only did 12 rides and was going to do their next 100 rides on this bike is probably going to come to a similar conclusion that you're reaching. I think so. Yeah. And just as a, for a little bit of an illustration of 
what that C2 angle means in terms of actual position. I took some measurements the other day and compared it to my Nikolai G16, which has a pretty damn steep C tube itself. That one, Nikolai states at 77 effective and 74 actual. And I have the same seat on them, so it's an apples to apples comparison there. And on the privateer, with the seat moved all the way back on the rails, which is to say effectively making the seat tube slacker by as much as I can given the seat adjustment, the very tip of the nose of the seat is about 28 millimeters forward of the center of the bottom bracket. Whereas on my Nikolai, I run the seat not quite slammed all the way forward, but relatively far forward on the rails. And even so, the tip of the seat's about 24 millimeters behind the center of the bottom bracket there. So it's more than a 50 millimeter difference between the two, even accounting for uh, moving the seat in opposite directions on the rails. So that's a big difference in where you're sitting relative to the pedals, and uh, it feels it. Okay, well, so what else should we know about the Privateer 161? Yeah, so beyond the seating position, this is something we talked about a little bit in a few different conversations too, including with in your one with uh, Johan Borelli a few weeks ago. Yeah. You can kind of have a bike that feels just cushy and good and comfortable, and you can have a bike that maybe doesn't feel quite as smooth and dialed, but just is fast. And the 161 feels kind of more like the latter. I haven't done any specific time testing with it, but it's not the smoothest, most compliant, planted kind of ride. It just feels a little bit kind of high, strong, and aggressive. But pointing it down something steep and getting on it, it really can move. And it's a bike that just wants to be pushed hard and ridden aggressively and wants you to try to ride it fast. It's not that interested in kind of mellower terrain and moseying around, taking in the scenery kind of riding. It it does want to go hard, but if you're pushing it and are really trying to get on it, it does that really well. Which, again, makes sense given that they were aiming at it being an EWS race bike. And yeah. They've definitely built something that fits that use case pretty well. Well, to kind of wrap up our conversation of the Privateer 161, I guess I'm interested then in hearing your thoughts, at least for now, about exactly how specific of a bike is this. In other words, if I'm not going to be signing up for enduro races this coming season, the following season, etc., should I just really not be looking at this bike? Is this a, like, if you ain't racing, don't worry about this one, not for you. Or where would you locate it in terms of its a versatility or applicability in that sense? I wouldn't quite go as far as to say that if you're not racing, forget about it. What I would say is that I think it's a bike that makes sense for people who are mostly riding trails where they're grinding up a long climb and then descending something pretty extended and steep on the way back down rather than mellow or rolling terrain. And even in that case, I'd still only recommend it for someone who is probably or at least a reasonably experienced rider and is just the kind of person who is interested in pushing and trying to go fast and hard. You don't necessarily have to be racing per se for that, but it's not a mellow, easygoing trail bike either. And 
it don't it makes sense for someone who is kind of a on that sort of terrain and b taking a relatively aggressive approach to it whether that is racing or that's just how you go out and do your everyday rides either way is fine but it's not a super versatile bike so and privateer makes a 141 that they intended to be the versatile option in their range it's got a little less travel c2 bangles not as steep rest of the geometry is actually fairly similar it's a half degree steeper in the head tube and so on but that was the bike that they meant to be the versatile one and i think that if you want a everyday trail bike that's probably the option out of their range that is likely to make sense for more people i haven't ridden the 141 yet but it's got enough in common with the 161 in terms of suspension layout and geometry and everything that i think feel like i can extrapolate pretty well to what i would imagine the 141 is going to be like and it should be quite a bit more versatile i think well i think we'll leave it at that with the privateer for now i guess we ought to be able to expect your review coming out in three or four weeks on this something like that probably yeah and i'm curious what are a couple of the bikes that you will be comparing the 161 to yeah i think the two most interesting comparisons i have to make off the bat are first off the gorilla gravity nirvana which has apart from the c2 bangle pretty similar geometry to the 161 and despite that feels sort of surprisingly different and it's well we'll get into that more in the real review and then also by Nikolai G16 that we mentioned earlier in talking comparing C2 bangles which again actually feels a little bit more surprisingly different to the privateer than the geometry numbers might suggest so we'll leave it there for now but uh, there'll be a lot more on that in the full review fairly soon okay next topic suspension since at this point I'm convinced that the sun is going to die before you ever post our like suspension roundup i will be amazed if uh if we aren't living on a cold dead planet before we actually see your roundup but we were told this was the final piece of the puzzle do i have this right you do yeah so i thought i was about ready to go on it and then things fell in place with owens i've got an rxf 36 m2 air that i've been testing and it's had quite a bit of time on it now and I'm getting along with it really well. So I think out of the forks that are going to be included in that roundup, the most interesting comparison to the Olins is the Manitou Mezzer Pro that I reviewed last year and really was extremely impressed with. Really one of my favorite products from last year. And so they are both relatively long travel enduro single crown forks. And what makes them a particularly interesting comparison to each other is that they both have a fairly similar but unconventional to the rest of the market design of their air spring. We've talked about this quite a bit in a few different places, but the short version is that they both have two separate independently adjustable parts of the positive air spring chambers or two separate chambers for it that you set the pressure for separately and they help tune different aspects of how the fork ramps up through the mid stroke and kind of how supportive it feels. And as a result, both of them are just much more supportive through the mid stroke and kind of give just a little bit more feedback 
of what is happening on the trail than most other similar forks with a more quote unquote typical air spring design. The Mezer, the Manitou, is very slightly lighter than the Owens and also notably stiffer in the chassis, especially torsionally. It, it's a surprisingly big difference on that front, actually. The Owens is not uncommonly flexy exactly for that class of fork, but it's, um, I'd put it, you know, roughly on par with a Fox 36, which is a reasonably stout fork in and of itself. But the Manitou is just a solid step stiffer and more solid than either of those two. What I found that's interesting, though, is that the Olin's air spring, despite having the same two air chambers and a similar layout to it, is quite a bit easier to set up than the Manitou one and not as sensitive to small relative changes in pressure in the two different chambers. And so the Manitou, I love the way that fork works and was able to get a setup for it that I that worked super, super well for me, but it's also quite sensitive to just a one or two PSI change here and there. And can you can make it feel pretty weird if you deviate a little bit from uh, what kind of works better as a more ideal setup. Whereas the, I guess you can call, say it, put it like the uh, overall window that you can hit on the Owens isn't quite as wide. And so it's just, you're a little bit more constrained in how you can set it up, but that has the benefit of making it so that it's harder to set it up such that it feels really weird. And so it's easier to tune. The damper is also a little bit less uh, fine tunable than the Manitou. It's just got a slightly smaller tuning range and again is in some ways easier to set up as a result. The Olin's also definitely beats the Manitou in terms of small bump sensitivity. It's just a little bit lower friction and a little bit smoother off of the top. But the flip side is that the Manitou is a good chunk cheaper. The retail price on the Olin's is $1,250. The Manitou's $1,000. So you got a, a notable difference there. And the other thing with the Olin's is that the out-of-the-box tune on the compression damping settings is notably very stiff. So I really like the way it feels as I have it set up right now, but I'm also running the high speed compression adjuster backed all the way off, which is pretty rare for me. I'm not a super big guy, I weigh about 165 pounds, but on most out of the box forks, I'm running the compression adjustment, both high and low speed generally, somewhere around middle of their range typically and on some of the newer fox stuff i'm even going close to all the way closed on the high speed compression adjuster on both the 38 and the newest 40 but the um owens is just a very very firm damping tune and so i'm running the adjusters opened up quite a bit more than i normally do so that might be a little bit limiting for people who are particularly light say and um, tend to find themselves running their compression adjusters pretty close to wide open where to next? So I'll uh, keep doing suspension. Um, along with the RXF 36M2 that I've been on, Owens also sent over the TTX22 rear shock. It's their coil kind of enduro and DH rear shock. I've been 
running both the fork and the shock on my Nikolai G16 that we talked about earlier. And that makes it a good point of comparison to the EXT Storia that I reviewed earlier, or I guess last year now, and tested on that same bike. So they're both high-end enduro coil rear shocks. And um, again, I'm very impressed with the performance of both of them. It's sort of a little bit of a similar story as the four comparison. The Owens rear shock is a little bit easier to set up, just not quite as involved in terms of having as wide an adjustment range. And it's got a little bit bigger steps between the compression adjuster settings and fewer fewer clicks in all the adjusters. And so there's not as much ability to ultra fine tune it, but it uh, just is a little bit more straightforward to set up because of that. And then the thing with the EXT that I talked about quite a bit in the full review of that, which is up on the site, is that it's a custom made to order rear shock. And part of the process is that you have a conversation with EXT and talk about exactly how you want the shock to work and go through a whole bunch of your personal preferences for fine tuning and so on. And then EXT comes up with a whole tune on the shock to suit whatever it is that you asked for and whatever bike you're putting it on. And so the results of that were very good, but it does sort of make it a product that people who are going to get the most out of it are people who have spent a bunch of time on some high-end suspension, ideally have ridden the bike that they're going to put it on a bit with some other shock and have more of a point of reference for how that performs and what they want it to do differently, say, or what they want to get out of that setup. And it's Whereas the Owens, um, they do a bit of uh, custom tuning on a bike-by-bike -bike basis, but the process is more that they have their own library of tune setups for a bunch of different bikes and you just say, hi, I'm going to put this on my transition Sentinel or whatever it is. And they just have a out of the box transition Sentinel tune ready to go. And it's a little bit less involved on the user end of telling them what you want it to do exactly and so on. So the flip side is that the EXT is definitely a little bit lower friction and a little bit better small bump sensitivity. It especially really stands out in that regard, even compared to just about every other coil shock I've ever ridden. So if you're willing to put in the fine tuning effort and have a good idea of what you want out of the shock, there is maybe just a little bit extra performance that you can eke out of the EXT, but the Olin's is also very, very good and easier to deal with and also a little bit less expensive to boot. All right, well, let's leave it at that for now with the suspension talk, and we're going to do something that we don't do all the time around here. We should probably do more of it, but let's talk about hardtails. Yeah, so another bike that I've been spending a little bit of time on recently, I only got it last week, so I've only got two rides on it. It also just snowed a whole bunch here in western Washington, so uh, it's going to be another week before I get out on the bike again, probably. But the bike I'm spending time on is the Marin Elroy, which is their relatively new, super aggressive hardtail. It's a steel frame, and they spec it with a 140 millimeter travel Marzaji Z1 fork, which is kind of relatively burly enduro fork. And 
in the kind of travel range that I think makes a lot of sense for a super aggressive hardtail. I've said this before, but I've found that trying to put a really long travel fork on a hardtail just doesn't really work out that well for me, even if it's something super aggressive and slack and the rest. If you put a super long travel fork on the front, you just end up changing the geometry of the bike more wildly as the fork cycles through its travel and there's no rear suspension to balance that out. And you just produce this sensation of pitching you over the bars all the time as the front end drops away and the rear end doesn't move at all to balance that out. I've jokingly kind of compared it to riding a stapler down the hill because you're just slamming the front end down and nothing else is happening in back. I think they did a, made a good call there going at 140 millimeters travel and the geometry is notably quite aggressive also. They only make it in two sizes. So I'm actually riding the smaller one of the two, even though I'm six feet tall. Uh, and th that one has a 480 millimeter reach. Uh, it's got a 63 degree head tube angle and, um, 435 millimeter chainstays, which maybe doesn't sound super long compared to full suspension bikes, but that is pretty damn long for a hardtail. There aren't a whole lot out there that are quite that long. And so it's just very long wheelbase, slack head angle, aggressive geometry bike. And then the bigger of the two sizes goes up to a 510 reach, which is especially huge, especially when you account for the fact that, again, with a hardtail, uh, that only gets longer at sag because you're only sagging the front end and therefore stretching the bike out even more a little bit. And then they've done a pretty solid build on it for the most part too. It's right around $2,800 complete if I remember right. And that's with a mostly Shimano Dior drivetrain, uh, four, Shimano four piston brakes, the MT400s, relatively inexpensive four pots from them. Like I said before, a Marzacci Z1 fork, which is kind of pretty close to a uh, the cheaper Fox 36 performance. Marzaggi's owned by Fox, and it's sharing the same spring and damper as that in a slightly different chassis. Overall, it's proving to be a pretty fun, really aggressive hardtail, which is sort of a silly thing. But at the same time, they're a really good time. I've owned a number of different variants on the idea, and it's the sort of thing where it's hard to make a super strong rational objective case for them, but they're just a lot of fun. And I ride mine a lot in the winter in particular around here in Western Washington, where it's just conditions are generally wet and horrible and it's less stuff to maintain and a fun way to kind of spice up trails that you've ridden a million times before and haven't just make it new and different somehow. And um, Berin's done a nice job of putting together a, a bike that works for that kind of thing for the sorts of riders who'd normally be riding a six inch travel enduro bike on those sorts of trails. And it's cool. There are a couple little oddities to the spec that I'm sort of working out. Um, probably the most annoying so far is that uh, like I said, it's a Shimano Dior drivetrain, which is you know nothing fancy, but works pretty well. But the problem that I'm having with it is that they skipped the Shimano Hyperglide Plus chain, which has a kind of some special 
profiled other chain plates and stuff that's meant to interface nicely with the new Shimano 12-speed cassettes and put a KMC on it. And it turns out that it actually kind of does matter. Um, it, the KMC chain doesn't shift as well as an actual Shimano one does. And one of the other things that's manifested is that the chain is prone to uh, walking kind of off the cassette if you are in kind of the lower half of the cassette and backpedal. It just comes off the top side of the cassette and drops down a bunch of gears, and then you have to have the derailleur reshift it if you get back on the pedals again. And so that's a bummer. And it, you know, it is sort of an interesting uh, proof of Shimano's insistence that no, their new chain tooth profile really is something magic and special and different. But the uh, KMC chain really does work dramatically worse on it. So, um, that was, I guess, both a fun test and just proving to be an irritation. The other weird thing is that Marin chose to spec a double down casing rear tire, so a thicker, burlier rear tire with a lighter EXO Plus front, which that seems fair enough, especially on a hardtail. You're just pounding on the rear wheel more and more prone to doing pin flats and things like that. But they also went with the stickier Maxxis Max Grip rubber on the rear tire and then the harder Max Terra up front. And so it's got this kind of weird thing where you have the grippier, slower rolling, stickier tire on the back where it both contributes more to rolling resistance. And if anything, I definitely want my front tire to be gripping better than the rear one because it's just a lot more controllable to have the back end sliding around a little bit than vice versa. And they've kind of got that backwards. So it's they're 2.5 uh, acid guys at both ends, but just in the different rubber compounds. And so the tire relative grip is feeling a little weird. I might end up having to switch those around or do something a little bit different to get that a bit better dialed in. But overall, it's a very fun, very aggressive hardtail at a relatively reasonable-ish price, not anything super expensive. And they've, they've done that with a pretty high-end steel frame. It's uh, nice, lightweight, butted tubes and rides really nicely. It's not like it's just something out of, you know, really super thick-walled, ultra-stiff, harsh, basic steel tubing. It's a, it's a good, well-put-together frame and rides really well. And the fact that they've got that with a solid build for quite a bit under three grand is pretty cool. So let's say for every hundred Elroys that Marin sells, yeah, how many of those hundred do you think are going to people for whom this is going to be a second or third bike in their bike quiver versus this is their only bike and they're choosing it because of the price point and because of the, they just don't want to deal with as many, or they want to limit their maintenance issues. Mm -hmm. If you had to really identify like this percentage of riders, you know, this is who your guess of how you're chopping up, who actually would purchase this. If I had to guess, I bet it's more people who are buying it as a second bike than people who are going to ride one of these every day. It's a little bit of a funny bike in that it's a hardtail, but it's a 
super aggressive one. And so for I think there are a whole bunch of people out there who would be well served by a hardtail with a little bit more moderate geometry who are going to be riding doing a bunch of trail riding on relatively smooth trails and that kind of thing. But the Elroy's maybe not quite that either. It's it's such a long aggressive slack bike that it's it's you know, it's still a hardtail. It's not like it's a 180 millimeter ultra enduro sled kind of thing. But I do think that, you know, I bet more people who are buying these are the kind of people who also have a 160 ish millimeter travel full suspension enduro bike as more of an everyday ride and are buying the Elroy because they want a fun second hardtail to do that with. And that's kind of, that's my guess. I'm, I'm sure they're not exclusively falling into that camp, but I would bet that it's more of that than everyday hardtail riders. So if the Elroy was, you know, like an ice cream flavor, it would be kind of like a mint pecan jalapeno ice cream, right? And you've got, you don't want it every day. You don't want it, you don't want it to be the only flavor of ice cream you have, but you kind of want to get weird sometimes. Yeah, I think that's about right. Certainly that's how hardtail ownership works for me too. Like I, I wouldn't want to ride one every day, but I have owned one for continually for the last very long time. And I really enjoy having one around. Okay. All right. Well, listen, I should let you get going here, but before I do, I think we ought to put to you, you know, the question that we like to ask around here, which is sort of what's your big idea that you've been, you know, spinning on most recently? What have you got? Yeah. So this is sort of a theory I've been formulating recently, in part driven by some conversations I've had with a few different people at a couple bike companies and then also a few people who are working in bike shops. And it has to do with wheel size. And to be clear, I'm certainly not saying that this applies to everyone who likes 29ers by any stretch, but I do really think that a significant part of the reason that 29ers are seemingly taking over the world and becoming the default wheel size for most mountain bikes is that I really think that there are a good number of people who bought their first 29er in the last handful of years after a lot of the kind of recent evolution of bike geometry that we've seen with everything going longer and slacker and steeper seat tube angles and all the rest. And just in addition to both geometry stuff as well, though, bikes have just gotten quite a bit better on a whole bunch of fronts in the last few years. You've got things are getting lighter, suspension's gotten better, tires have gotten better, whole list of stuff. And I think there are a whole bunch of people who bought that first 29er, call it, I don't know, two, three years ago, whatever it is. And that was the best bike they've ever ridden for sure. But there are people who are kind of out there over attributing the amazingness of their new wonder bike to the bigger 29 inch wheels. And so you kind of have this idea that 29 inch wheels are amazing and the best thing ever because my new 29er is so good and such a huge improvement over the 27.5 or maybe even 26 inch bike that it replaced that 
sure had smaller wheels but was also just a bunch more dated and not as good in a whole bunch of other ways as well and you know i'm riding a whole bunch of bikes back and forth right now have in um, a lot of them are 29ers there are a lot of really great 29ers out there i don't mean this to be disparaging 29ers as a category or anything but at the same time i think that there are a lot of people who would be very very surprised at what a 27 five inch wheeled bike but with modern geometry and suspension and all the rest can do and how it feels and how well in particular they corner i mean i I'm riding a lot of 29ers, and there are a lot of 29ers that I like a lot, but there really is something to be said for the way the smaller wheels lean over and kind of tuck into a hard corner that 29ers do just give a little bit up on. And I think there's very much a place in the world for both wheel sizes, and that I just, yeah, I would like to see more bikes from with both wheel size or more 27.5 bikes these days, really, because 29ers are becoming so ubiquitous. Just a little bit of food for thought and encouragement for people out there that maybe don't sleep on 27.5 wheels still. They are a lot of fun, work really well, and um, 29ers aren't necessarily the end-all be-all of wheel sizes either. Honestly, to me, that seems like a pretty big idea because I definitely have been very solidly in the 29er camp and so i like the idea that like it might not merely be the wheel size that is factoring into some of these you know assessments of a given bike since there's all kinds of bits and pieces to these bicycles we're, we're rolling these days so i like it that's a good one i think yeah thanks and i mean to be super clear also like my take is very much not that wheel size doesn't matter and there's no difference. It's it's just that 29ers also aren't objectively better across the board. Like it very much is a case of trade-offs rather than 29ers being the thing. Got it. Well, hey man, I appreciate the rundown. Always good checking in with you to see what you've been up to and how you're thinking about the bike world. And I think we'll let you get back to it on that note. Sounds good. Good talking to you as always. All right, man. We'll catch up soon. Talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to David for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>